Okay, if you would please turn to the book of Ephesians. I'll be reading Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Father, I pray that no soul in here will be so shriveled up and dead that it cannot sing and declare and shout about Your glory in this passage. And that's every one of us without the work of Your Spirit that so mightily works within us. So would You be working this morning converting, sanctifying, powering to see Your glory and to proclaim how good it is to us. Amen. So that's my opening question for every one of us in here. Do you have it within you to burst out in doxology about God? Now, those words about God are key to that question. Because everyone in here, every child, every teenager, every adult in here has longing and has need to sing glory to someone or to something. You ever stand at the entrance of Yosemite Valley? It's amazing. There's a doxology. Did you see that catch? Glorious. That song from my favorite band is out of this world. Look at my new tattoo or my new hairdo. Or, and I know he's retired now, but Derek Jeter is an artist with a glove. It's shortstop. And we can go on and on. Everybody bursts out with doxologies to one degree or another. It is who we are. It is how we are made. It's foundational. And it was foundational to Paul's thinking when he wrote in Romans chapter 1, claiming... To be wise, they, meaning all of us in our sinful nature, became fools. And we exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. But if you belong to Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, through new birth and the hearing of the Gospel, if you are in Christ and you have understood these first three chapters of Ephesians that Paul has penned, culminating in what we saw the last few weeks, that prayer, then you will sing this doxology of chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. It's flowing right out of the prayer. And remember, the prayer that we went through, I cannot imagine a more bold prayer than that. Father, Paul says, would you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, infuse these Christians so that they will come more and more into a subjective 
experience of your glory, of your love for them in Jesus Christ. And he just sums it up this way. In other words, fill them with all the fullness of God. Okay. I don't think you can get any higher than that. Now here's the question. Did Paul go over the top? Did he go too far? All the fullness of God. Well, what he does now, it flows right into the end of the first half of this letter. It flows right into what is called a doxology. And the doxology we're looking at this morning is the answer to that question of whether Paul, come on, to be filled with all the fullness of God. It answers the question, no, he didn't go too far. He says it is impossible to ask for too much of God. Now, I don't mean, he's saying, it's impossible to ask God for too much stuff or even wrong stuff. That's very possible. What I mean is that it's impossible to ask Him to give us too much of Himself. That's the context. I mean, you cannot over-ask, fill me with all your fullness. God, it's impossible to ask too much of God. Verse 20. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. And so as we ask for the Holy Spirit to empower us to walk with Christ, to be experiencing fellowship and intimacy of the experience of the profound depths and height and width and breadth of His love for us. We can never ask something that the Father in that context does not have the power to do and the will to do. Let's pull back first. I use the big word doxology. You never assume. What's this word? It comes from two Greek words, doxa and logos. Doxa means glory. It can mean praise. Okay. Logos means a word or it can mean speech. Doxa logos, doxology. That's how we get it. It means to to shout, to sing, to declare, say words of praise to Caesar. It's a doxology. Or glory to God. That's a doxology. Important word because they're all over the Bible. Doxologies are in the Old Testament. They're in the New Testament. The early church, 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th century writings are filled with creation of doxologies and many churches sing the doxology every Sunday today. You know doxologies. Remember when Jesus was born, that very night the shepherds are out, there were angels who proclaimed a doxology saying, Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among those with whom He is pleased. And many years later, a huge crowd of Jesus' followers, as Jesus was entering Jerusalem in the last week of His life on a donkey, with loud voices they proclaimed a doxology. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. In the last book of the Bible, in chapter 5 of Revelation, verse 13 we read, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth 
and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And then in Revelation 19.1, After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Doxologies. Words of attributing glory to one. In the Old Testament, in the book of Psalms, you know, the book of Psalms is divided up actually into five separate books. And all five of the books of Psalms end with a doxology. I mean, just, I'm not going to read them all, just to give you a taste. In Psalm 41, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and Amen. In Psalm 72, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be His glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with His glory. Amen and Amen. And on and on in the Psalms. And then there is the traditional doxology that many churches sing every Sunday. Praise God, from whom all blessings flow. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Now, so in a first century doxology, there were normally four parts to it. The first part, to whom is it being said? Or about? God? Or Glory to Caesar or to the Grand Canyon. Okay, so that's the first part. To whom? What's it about? Secondly is the glory part. Honor or glory or dominion. Words of praise like that. The third part is the duration. Forever and ever. And then the fourth part. The Word. Amen. So. Yes, indeed. We affirm. And our doxology here in Ephesians 3 has all four of those parts. But let me give you still just another taste of the New Testament letters, okay, outside of Paul, for instance, how doxologies just come up in the middle of writing the letter. Okay, In 1 Peter 4, he says, In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. And then again in 1 Peter 5, to Him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Or the Hebrew writer in Hebrews 13.21, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And then that glorious doxology at the end of Jude. Now, to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Okay, all of that is just the first part. God. Okay, that's how he says God there. Our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now, and forever. Amen. And yes, 
Paul is not a mere theologian. He bursts out in doxologies throughout his letters. I, I just I don't have the official count, but I count at least eight. Okay, and I can read them all. I'll just give you a taste. In 1 Timothy 1.17, he's writing to Pastor Timothy. But here he goes. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And again in 1 Timothy 6, He who is the blessed and only Sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to Him be honor and eternal dominion forever. Amen. And then the way Paul ends the glorious first 11 chapters of Romans. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things to Him be glory forever. Amen. Okay, got it? You feel the doxology. Alright, so now Coming back to the doxology of our passage, Ephesians 3, 20-21. He has all four parts, and there's the first part, the beginning of verse 20, the one he is giving glory to. All of verse 20, actually. Now, to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. That's the one. He's going to say, be glory. But what Paul's doing, why didn't he just say to God? Well, because of context. He's a very contextual person. He has just prayed a prayer. And this doxology is flowing out of it. And here, instead of just saying God, he is emphasizing God's power that he prayed for to operate in them. Actually, the, the translation to him who is able to do, that's it. It's a good translation. It's a true translation. But... It can obscure the original in what I think Paul is doing. What I mean is this. In verse 16 in the prayer, look at it, he said that he may grant you to be strengthened with power. Okay, that's the Greek word, dunamis. To be strengthened with dunamis, with power, through His Spirit, in your inner being. Okay? Dunamis, power. Then in the doxology in verse 20, he ends verse 20 this way, according to the power at work within us. Same word, dunamis. According to the power at work within us He can do, And that brings us back to the translation, able. It's translating, not the same word, but from the same root, because this is the verb form. Dunamis is a noun. The verb form, dunameno. It's a participle here. And I think we're supposed to see it. Where he's saying, now to him who is able, no, to him who is powerful. Okay, so the flow is this. In verse 16, God strengthens us with dunamis, with power, through His Spirit in our inner beings. And then in verse 20, to Him who is powerful to do according to the power at work within us. That's what He's doing. And so Paul has just, he's just prayed that God's power 
would pour into our inner beings to cause us to experience the very love that Jesus has for us and be caught up in it continuously. And then He burst out with this doxology. And now to Him who is powerful to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. And so He says, the limits of our asking, the limits of the ability of our mind to even imagine what we may need do not limit God. In His power. You remember what Paul said back in chapter 1 of Ephesians in verses 19 and 20. Listen carefully. He says, So that you may know what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe This power that was according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His own right hand in heavenly places. So Paul says, that's the same power at work in Christians. He says the same power that raised Jesus bodily, physically to a new glorified human life and seated Him at God's right hand, that's the same power He works in us. It's the same power that Paul talked about in chapter 2 when he said that's the same power that raised us from spiritual death to new life and seated us with Christ. And now it's the power, Paul prays, that God would continually pour out and grant to us. Because He is the God who's all-powerful to work far beyond anything we can think to ask according to the power at work within us. Do we believe that? See, the reason that God is willing to do for you far beyond what you have the ability to ask or even imagine, the reason He's willing is because He is good. He saved you. Because He is good. Now, for you Narnia fans, and I am reading the first one, The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe again. One of my kids has to read it for class. It was, okay, stop it. The Lion, and Witch, okay. okay. Remember what Mr. Beaver said to the children, and I think, Lindsay will correct me, or I think it was Lucy who asked, about when Mr. Beaver was talking about the lion, Aslan, who is the Christ figure. Is he safe? And Mr. Beaver said, Safe? No. He's not safe. But he's good. God is not safe. Towards sin. Towards sinners. He's wrathful. But He sent His Son in order to absorb His wrath And you who believe are in His Son. He is your refuge. Oh, He is 
good. And He is utterly safe. Now. To you. That's why He's the God who is all-powerful to actually do far above what you ask of Him and what you can imagine. Remember that in the Garden of Eden, Eve sinned because she believed the lie that God is not good. That's it. Did He say? No, no, no. See, God doesn't want you to eat of that tree because He knows that if you eat of it, you'll have all the good stuff He has. You'll be like God. He's withholding from you. He's not out for your happiness. And she bought it. And she ate. She gave to her husband with her. And he ate. Why do I say that? Because in the midst of this doxology, in the midst of the prayer, we all know real life. And so does Paul. So does God who superintends our real lives. And so when you are going through trials, watch out for the sin of Eve. It is easy to start to think, He doesn't love me. He doesn't care about me. He's not good to me. But remember how Paul wraps up those glorious first eight chapters of Romans. We're all under God's judgment and wrath and have sinned and He sent His Son to make propitiation for our sin so that we can hear it and then we would come alive to faith and be justified forever and walk in sanctification. And he says, let me wrap it up this way for you. And you should commit this to memory if you don't already have it. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us believers, all of us, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? He is the One who is all-powerful. To give, to work by His power in us far beyond anything we could ask or even think to ask. That's that's the one this doxology is sung about. Which brings to the second part, the glory part. To Him be glory. Uh, Glory. Radiance. The glory of the sun is it's shining forth outwardly. We can feel it and we can respond to it. Oh, it feels so good. Look what a beautiful day as the sun hits us. We're not on the sun. We're not even touching it. But the radiance of the sun is its, its glory. And so we human beings, metaphorically, we, we describe glory to all kinds of things. I don't know how many times I heard the word glory, but there's a number of times throughout the Olympics last month. See, we are humans, and therefore we ascribe glory to the fastest runner on planet Earth because it is amazing. Usain Bolt. Three Olympics. He entered nine events and got nine gold medals. Glory to Usain Bolt. Or, all glory be to God. 
We extol you. We exalt you. We acknowledge your glorious loving kindness. What you have done. What you are doing. What you will forever and ever do. Amen. Glory. I I just have to wonder if the reason that some people feel awkward singing in churches, awkward showing in their person a response to the glory of God, if it's not because, well, He's just not as real as finding a Pokemon on a street corner with an iPhone. Or just just not as real as the glory of your favorite team scoring the winning touchdown in the last five seconds of the game where you can't sit anymore. You must stand and you must shout. Selah. Pause. Think about it. So in this second section... To Him be glory. Paul does something unusual here. He says it this way. To Him be glory in the church. To Tom Brady, that's a quarterback some of you, to Tom Brady be glory in the Super Bowl. To Michael Phelps be glory in the Olympics. To God be glory in the church. Now, what makes sense to why Paul does this is what he has already written. The first three chapters. And it all comes together. So I'm just going to just going to give you a short taste. In chapter 1, Paul said, And God put all things under Christ's feet and gave Him, Christ, as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him, who fills all in all. In chapter 2, verse 22, In Christ you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In chapter 3, verses 9-11, to And to bring to light for everyone What is the plan of the mystery which has been hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to to the eternal purpose that He has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So why does Paul do the strange thing and say, to Him be glory in the church? Because that's His goal. His goal from before He ever created was to be glorified in You who believe now and forever and ever. You see, if God did not fully delight in what is most delightful in existence, most holy, most perfect, most worthy, most valuable, most beautiful, if He did not fully, with all of His omnipotence, embrace and enjoy it, which happens to be Himself, which is another way to say His glory, 
He would be unrighteous then if He didn't. And it would be horrific for us, the creatures. To, to be saved by a God who does not take His perfections and beauty and eternal happiness seriously? Not, not so important. Other things are more important than that. Then what are we being saved unto? But since His glory is always upheld, that's what the cross is about. Father, glorify Your Son with the same glory that He had with You before we created the worlds. And so God, in His glory, is our greatest hope for true and everlasting holiness and happiness forever. And so God creates and He redeems us sinners through His Son so that we would come alive through new birth to taste and see that glory. So in other words, He created the church so that from all kinds of strange human beings, Jews and Gentiles, males and females, Black and brown and white and yellow and red over vast periods, generations of time, and vastly different cultural backgrounds throughout that time, he would have one church to reflect his glory forever. And that one church is made up of the living and the dead, of millions upon millions upon millions of individual reflectors. You know reflectors on a bicycle and the joggers wear them now too? There's no light in there. They don't have light in themselves. But cars or God has light. And when the lights hit the reflectors, you could see it. It's like a light going on. That's why He created the church. To reflect His glory. Or the way He said it in chapter 3. To reflect His manifold, many-faceted wisdom of how good He is in Jesus Christ. And so we all, as local churches, exist to be a visible body of people who are a doxology to God. And because we are, we also sing doxologies to God for such a glorious, beautiful salvation. Verse 21 again. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. Okay. See, if the church is the place where the glory of God is seen and reflected to the seen and the unseen worlds, then Jesus Christ is the embodiment of that glory because the only way human beings could truly or genuinely actually be in Christ's church is to be spiritually in Christ. And Jesus gets all the glory. It is your glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. So to God, be glory in the church and in Christ. And then the third element. Throughout all generations, forever 
and ever. Oh, I think more and more the, the church needs to get that. Everything in this world is fleeting. And so even, even in the midst of our own American culture, which is more and more aggressively hostile to Christianity and to biblical values, God is on the move. Not only that, His glory, that is His radiance in the church shines brighter in the darkness. And the good news about our culture, if you can call it that, becoming more and more anti Christ, anti-biblical theology and anti-biblical morality is the good news for the church is that it's becoming harder and harder to become and remain a nominal Christian. A Christian in name. I don't want to identify with that name anymore. The bigots. Okay, that's good. Though true Christians aren't bigots. It's becoming harder in a context like this to remain a cultural Christian. And the more persecution arises in our country, the more purifying of the church will happen. For many people, whether Christianity means you punch a card on Sunday morning and we figure out how to grow the business of a church and you know we want people to like us and that's just how you've been doing it for years and years and it can work in a particular context. But more and more now, uh-oh, things are being pushed now. You know, the Bible, it says this stuff about homosexual, sexual activity. Where do you stand on that? It's really hard for people who almost stand on nothing. So I'm going to make that stand. That's not going to make people come to my church necessarily then. So it's clarifying. It's clarifying. It's clarifying. It's just not a time to become more and more like the present evil culture and cave in to its sexual morals and its so-called tolerance. It's time, more than ever, to hold to the clarity of the Gospel and to biblical membership in the church. Amen. This glory that He's speaking about in the church and in Christ Jesus is not just for the time you're alive. It's not just for the next 10 years or 50 or 150. It will extend throughout eternity. And that's where we need to root our hope. Do you remember how Paul said that back in chapter 2, verse 7? So that in the coming, not decades, not centuries, not millennia, but in the coming Ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness. He is good toward us in Christ Jesus forever and ever. And then the fourth part of the doxology. One word. Amen. We affirm. Yes. And so there are four things that this doxology connected with the prayer that it comes out of mean to us here today. First thing that this means is don't be caught 
guilty of not having the power of God working in you because you don't ask. Ask and you will receive. Seek and you'll find. Seek His power working in you and you will find rest for your souls and intimate comfort in God's power and experiencing the very love that Christ has for you. He can do that and far more abundantly anything you can actually ask Him or anything you can even think about asking Him. Which leads to the second point. That reality now, in this life, a life where it is clear that our Lord often puts His people in unpleasant and impossible situations so that our only hope is to rely on the power of God's glory through us. In us. It's what He does. It's what He loves. God, why did You let Sarah have to go through that pain for so long of barrenness? Why didn't You just cause her to get pregnant by Abraham decades earlier? Instead of waiting until she's really old. Well, his answer is because I want to show my glory in doing the impossible. In Genesis 18, we read, The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Abraham, is anything too hard for Yahweh? At the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. He can do anything that he so chooses to do. He can do far above what you can ask or imagine. Which leads to the third thing. Therefore, do not be surprised at difficult ordeals that draw you to utter dependence upon the Lord. Because He purposefully works that way. Here's how Paul said it about his own misery and joy. In 2 Corinthians 1. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Now, literally, I just want to read the literal instead of the ESV where they put a period. Why? In order that we would rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. That's His vision of God, His glory, and His goodness to Paul. Yes, you don't like it. Let me just die. And then it clicked. There is nowhere else to go. Even all my natural gifts that you've given to me, they're not the answer. I can't think my way out of this one. I rely on nothing but you. And that's the number one purpose of prayer.
may I have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is, Paul would say, in the midst of 2 Corinthians 1. What is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge so that I may be filled with all the fullness of God. Which leads to the final thing. It is that kind of prayerful walk with Christ that leads to doxology. You see, as Paul writes, he is spiritually on fire for God's goodness to him when he concludes the first half of this letter called Ephesians. And that's why he concludes it with this glorious doxology. He is not a mere theologian penning some heavy theology about the sovereignty of God being able to do everything. That's not what he's doing. He's singing. He's shouting. He's feeling. See, it's one thing to believe the doctrine of God's sovereignty in our heads. And it's quite another to experience it and have to rely upon it and to know it in our hearts. See, it's a holy thing. It's a God-glorifying thing to sing it and to shout it. Glory to God Almighty where else am I going to go? Who else has the words of true happiness and true life forever? Only through Jesus Christ. And that's why we will partake of His body and of His blood. Because He has brought us savingly to the Father where we feel, sing, and mean. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Father, thank You that You are the Father of us through the Son. And You're the One who works powerfully by Your power in the person of the Holy Spirit who works within us, Your people. Make us more and more reliant upon You. Make us those who hate our sin and pursue holiness by Your power which works mightily within us to the glory of Your name forever and ever. Amen.